Welcome to the seventh episode of Rewriting the Narrative, Women in the Justice System. Before we begin, we'd like to acknowledge that this podcast was put together on the land of the Bunurong people and acknowledge their traditional owners, past, present and emerging leaders. The podcast is put together by the team from the Living Free Project, a unique place-based partnership approach that encompasses both service delivery and project coordination that works together to improve service system responses for vulnerable girls and women and provides a voice of advocacy to highlight the need for systemic reform. Today we're talking about complex trauma. Significant research into women in the justice system has highlighted that a majority present with histories of trauma stemming from early childhood and compounded through multiple traumatic events over time. Complex trauma is something that's not well defined in Australia and subsequently relevant policies and frameworks are yet to be established. Addressing multiple needs of women is really challenged through a fragmented service system that is designed with services funded to respond to one issue at the one time. This approach leaves many women who have multiple and complex needs falling through the gaps and experiencing ongoing physical, sexual and emotional harm. Often these women experience a merry-go-round in the service system until their needs are so entrenched that they end up in contact with the justice system and a punitive response is initiated instead of the supportive and therapeutic one that's really required to help them unpack their complex trauma. There's been significant movement in upskilling services and those working across services to be trauma-informed. While this is a positive step, the challenge is that the actual model of care required to support individuals with complex trauma appears to be non-existent in the Victorian mental health system. A research report was published in May this year through Australia's National Research Organisation on Women's Safety. This report's titled A Deep Wound Under My Heart, Constructions of Complex Trauma and Implications for Women's Wellbeing and Safety from Violence. I give you the name of that article because for anyone interested in this area, I strongly suggest you take the time to read the report. Page 74 of this report references the flaws with responding to complex trauma through the biomedical model that's currently in operation, especially in the mental health sector. If you look at the evidence base of responding to complex trauma, the central and most foundational first stage of treatment is the establishment of safety and stabilisation. And safety may only be established over time. Whilst the current Victorian service system speaks of collaboration and holistic care, in reality, the services are exceptionally difficult to navigate, difficult to access, especially if you might be homeless or presenting with other complex needs, and they generally only deal with one presenting need and refer on to other services, and that really impacts the ability to establish the foundational trust and security required as the first steps towards recovery around complex trauma. Today in this episode, we're joined by two very passionate mental health professionals to talk about complex trauma and the current mental health responses. Gracie is a senior social worker working predominantly in public settings across forensic and public mental health and has been doing so for decades. And Siobhan is a senior psychologist who has worked in public and private practice with people with complex trauma also for decades. Welcome, Gracie and Siobhan. 
Welcome Siobhan and Gracie. It is fabulous to have you both here. Gracie, you've been an integral part of the Living Free Project. You provide a lot of support to our workers and a lot of guidance in relation to secondary consult. Can you provide the audience with an understanding of what complex trauma is and how it might present for a woman? Yeah, sure. And I guess um, if you think about the idea of complex trauma, it's really looking at how it starts out, I guess, predominantly when someone is in the developmental years and the formative years uh, of their lives where they are trying to get the sense of self, trying to learn skills as to how to interact with the world and, and cope with the many kind of challenges that the world is to bring. And I guess in that part of it, if you think about it, the family of origin then becomes really integral in the way that they learn how to, you know, behave in the world, interact with the world, cope with the world, cope as to how they will have internal kind of skills to cope with whatever that happens to them. And um, essentially, when you look at a lot of this uh, complex trauma, it's when there's a lot of significant abuse and it could be, you know, um, emotional, psychological, uh, physical. When those abuse actually happen to them by people who are predominantly people who are supposed to care for them. And you look at the literature research on complex trauma, essentially, and specifically, I guess, for women, you see that a lot of them are subjected to, I guess, sexual abuse is, is uh, definitely a significant part of, uh, I guess, those people who presents with complex trauma and I suppose uh, presents to public mental health system or forensic mental health system or in corrections. But also there's a significant uh, disproportionately large amount of people who actually suffer from um, emotional and psychological abuse, which then creates that impact on uh, who they are eventually as they grow up to be women. Um, their sense of self and how they interact with the world and, and come to understand the world. Um, and I suppose if you also look at some of the origins of this, you will find that a lot of these families of origin, even those abusers actually themselves have suffered, uh, abused themselves and come from intergenerational, uh, transgenerational kind of trauma history. And when you want to unpack that, that's really, yes, you can imagine really significant and challenging if you think about it, because you're not just unpacking for one generation of women and you're possibly also unpacking the different generations of, you know, their mothers or grandmothers and, and coupled with the intergenerational kind of abuse that you're looking at. We've definitely seen that for a lot of the women that we've had contact with. It seems, and it looks to me that the research that I've read shows a, a high representation of women in the justice system that present with complex trauma. So what are your thoughts around that? And is there any explanation as why there is such a high prevalence? Is it, do they continue through cycles and patterns? I think definitely there is a significant amount of cycles and patterns happening. And if you think about it, women in, in the justice system, they're still a minority and you're really looking at a system, a justice system that is not designed and created for, for women because predominantly a lot of the offenders um, that they pick up in the justice system are male. And a lot of the research that looks at, you know, understanding the kind of offending behavior, criminal behavior, how do you do to support them towards desistance or, or to reduce recidivism are actually predominantly targeting the males. They are not looking uh, research only in the recent 
I would say maybe 20 years or so, they're starting to focus more about the needs of the women because, you know, large part of the research has always been geared towards male, how to kind of manage them, how to mitigate the risk, the tools that they use uh, in the criminal justice system to understand those offending are not made for female, are not designed with a female in mind. Understandably, because the, the population that they have been researching on are predominantly males. And I think if you look at the research that has shown this, that as, as, they, as they start, as the research start, I suppose, emphasizing and are focusing on female, they realize that a lot of these offenders or, or females who present to the uh, criminal justice system are actually are quite similar to what we have just talked about in that they are vulnerable to abuse in their childhood you know, where they start show and, and start showing the kind of dysfunction or dysfunctional behaviors um, that they start displaying as they grow older. And when they trace back a lot of this, they do see a lot of cycles in it. A lot of these females come from family as well, who are um, have criminality. So their, their parents, their mother, their, their fathers, there's a lot of uh, literature research that shows that there's a large part of it that's um, a lot of criminality behavior and complex trauma happening within the generation. So abuse is quite prevalent in such uh, families as well, as well as using um, things that we know are, are quite linked to kind of uh, offending. So things like, you know, having those kind of uh, support systems that are quite antisocial and pro-criminal rather than pro-social. And then looking at uh, a significant amount of them actually uses substances to kind of modulate or, or kind of regulate their own behaviors and emotions and this is quite common if you look at it in terms of uh, research and i think that what we do see a lot is well what what we believe in the living free project is if we could invest and respond at a service system level that would very much be able to disrupt that trajectory for women into the justice system so siobhan i know you and i around um, many hallway discussions around the need for, I guess, a different model of care to respond to trauma or complex trauma. So why do you think there are such challenges in the mental health system in supporting women with complex trauma? Yes, Lisa, um, thank you. Really interesting to hear what, what you've got to say as well, Gracie. And, and absolutely, I, I think that the current system of care is not set up for women with complex trauma histories at all. In fact, uh, I think many of the service systems unintentionally do harm. And I suppose, you know, my opinion is that really it's based on a lack of understanding about the impact of complex trauma over time and that, you know, often the, the main therapeutic approaches are, you know, are psychosocial and the current system is still really, you know, it's still quite a medical model and it is shifting. But if we respond to people with complex trauma histories from a medical model, it, it does harm. And that's that's what we see. And I think, I think, you know, a lot of women with complex trauma histories might come into the service and, you know, what, what do they need? Well, they need a different sort of approach. You know, they need to be able to build relationships with one or two mental health professionals that can work with them quite proactively at first, that there needs to be time 
for them to develop engagement. There might need to be more assertive outreach at first. And then, you know, there needs to be that flexibility for them to come and go until they feel more ready and confident in the relationships to maybe do some psychological work. I think what having having worked in public and, and private sectors and, and having been lucky to work in a, a public system that did have a small service for these clients, you know, I can see the benefits and how well these women can do when you can actually um, provide them with the right sort of environment and support to make sense of what they've been through in their life to you know learn ways to manage their emotions but also that you know just what's needed over time is that a more psychodynamic approach to really work through what what they've what they've been through and to you know to start to make sense of of the impact of what's happened to them in their life on in in terms of their sense of their self but also their relationships moving forward and and that can look a little bit different for um, different women. And that's why there needs to be flexibility in that model, but also a model that allows for talking about, uh, you know, the impact of, of the work as a clinician and having a space that really supports the therapeutic process um, and time to think. And, at the, you know, at the moment that isn't readily available in public mental health, uh, actually or private practice. And I guess we're doing this podcast right in the midst of, in Victoria, of a um, six-week period of restrictions. And I know that the demands on the mental health system have increased considerably, public and private. So I guess I have a fear of that those that are more complex and more vulnerable are going to struggle even more to access the mental health support. That's been an ongoing battle, I think, in the service sector that's always under immense pressure, the mental health service. I know there's been a lot of work done across various sectors on in providing trauma-informed care. And by no means am I, I a mental health specialist, but from the research that I've done and the readings that I've done, there's quite a unique difference between what is trauma-informed practice and what is a model to respond to complex trauma. So I'm not sure, Gracie or Siobhan, if, if you've got any thoughts on maybe the differences between them. I hear the words trauma-informed practice a lot in public mental health. I, you know, I'm not quite sure people know what it means, or maybe that's a bit unfair. You know, maybe it's more about, you know, there is more of a movement towards trying to understand the impact of, of what, you know, the majority of clients in public mental health, men, women, complex trauma history, or even with schizophrenia, you know, we know that the trauma histories of these people are, you know, often really huge. And, and like the diagnostic system often doesn't help us understand actually what, what people have been through in their lives and understandably then why they're experiencing certain, you know, mental health symptoms. And, you know, trauma-informed practice, I suppose, tries to support people to think about and to understand, you know, the impact of what people have been through. But what we need is we need to understand how then the trauma, it plays out in the system around these clients. And that's part of the work. When a system is really reacting to a, to a client, it's often because, the, you know, the trauma dynamics of the past are in the present. And that's what these clients are dealing with every day. And, you know, part of the system the first important you know, call really for the system should be to understand that what is happening between us, what is happening around these clients, how do we work together to best respond in a consistent way? Because only when that happens does it really pave the way for a client to engage in 
in treatment that's um, you know, likely to help them. So you need, there has to be a service model which has that language, which doesn't just talk about diagnosis, but talks about process. It has a culture where clinicians come together and think about and talk about the work together. So it's not just about what happens in the room with someone, but it's about what happens around that client. And often it might be that the client's not able to engage in one-to-one in -one treatment, but actually there's a lot that can happen if you work with the system, you know, to minimise harm, for example, if you've got a, somebody with a complex trauma history and experienced, you know, um, emotional, physical, maybe sexual abuse when they're younger, as a way of coping with really unmanageable feelings, they've, you know, they've used drugs and alcohol, that's led them on to crime, for example, you know, they might become very distressed and end up in the ED and, now, what, what do we need as a trauma-informed... Well, often in the ED, they can be really risky, present with high risks, and that causes anxiety. And so what we tend to do is then react. There's often then, you know, restraints or, you know, assessment orders and inpatient unit stays. It's not that an inpatient unit state might not help, but it's the way that that's done. And, you know, that often then can make someone feel worse. And, you know, risk often then goes up. And it's about having a system that's able to recognise when there's anxiety and to slow things down so that... We learn to act but not react uh, and then cause unintentional harm. And I actually think, you know, many mental health professionals find it difficult to work with women with complex trauma histories because of the work can feel difficult in those moments if people don't understand the dynamics, but having a slightly different lens and different way of doing things, the work is so rewarding because, you know, you learn to, to connect with these women and see them recover and change. And, you know, that's rewarding as a professional. I think that I echo your sentiments and that time, that flexibility to establish the relationship. I know research has shown that that is integral in responding to complex trauma. And unfortunately, our service system doesn't allow time and flexibility. Gracie, I am a big fan of the miracle question. Uh, so I'm going to ask it to you in terms of the complex trauma, the model of care, I guess, from a systems level. If you, could, if you had all the resources you could ask for, how would you design a, a service to respond to women with complex trauma? I think I echo a lot of what um, Siobhan and Lisa yourself have actually talked about in that our current systems are actually not made for, you know, women and a lot of men as well. But, you know, there is a lot of a sense of that we tend to interact with them when they are in crisis mode or when they have committed an offence, you know, etc. when they really present with quite risky behaviour where I think a large part of the systems, unfortunately, a lot of the resources are pumped into this area. And if I were to design the system, going back to your question, it's really looking at how do I start some of the early intervention type of work, even looking at some preventive um, kind of work if possible. But I think early intervention becomes really key in this area when you look at um, women with complex trauma. So really looking at, for example, you know, where... I, when I first started out, I actually started out in child protection work. And I see, as you can imagine, the start of a lot of these uh, this women who actually are subjected to abuse at a young age. And I would imagine other than, and but child protection 
worldwide has always been an area that is once again short of resources and you know the clinicians themselves don't have time and flexibility to even build relationships with the clients that they are seeing and the families that they are seeing. So that's an area I would uh, imagine should get the right resources as well. And on top of that, really, um, as they move towards the youth services, what kind of early prevention, um, intervention kind of services should look at the wraparound care for these women that we know are more vulnerable and more at risk um, given the research that we have and the literature that we have. So really looking at a lot of the resources going to early intervention, type of work rather than at the later part of it where they start presenting in crisis and risky behavior. And I suppose on top of that, um, to add on to what Siobhan was saying, when a lot of the clinicians actually don't have the capacity or the, the resources to kind of even build relationship with the clients that they're seeing, these women that they're seeing. And on top of that, I think there is also uh, a lot of that complex dynamics that the clinician and the organization are, are kind of interacting with. And if you think about it, a lot of people in, the, in this service or the, in these professions are women. You know, there is going to be that impact on, on the self. I know for, for a matter of fact, you know, I'm having interact and work with women over the years. There is always a, a sense of what has happened to that woman and how does it impact on the self of the clinician for myself. And being a supervisor as well, I see that coming up in a lot of supervision as well. So I guess just really looking at allowing capacity and resources for those clinicians to be able to build relationship and understand those complex dynamics within themselves and with the systems that they are working with and with the women that they are working with. That's, a, I think, a very, very valuable part of um, where services should start focusing on. So that, that ability to just take a step back and understand what's happening so that we can be more intentional and purposeful in deciding how we want to respond and interact and, and work with this women, I think is important. I think you've touched on that allowing time the flexibility, the establishment of that relationship, but also ensuring that there is exceptionally good support for the clinicians during that process. And I think there's some really key facts that would need to be embedded into the system when you're working with women with complex trauma, but yet so rewarding as well. Siobhan, did you want to add to that miracle question? I did. I just wanted to add because I think, you know, it's we talk about having, having a bit more time and thinking and reflecting as a doing and that's part of the work, um, you know, for people who have experienced complex trauma histories. But, but also, you know, that actually the amount of money it must cost, ED and crisis services to respond, it costs so much money at the front end of treatment. And, and actually it would be, not that I've done the maths, but, you know, I'm sure it would it would make sense financially to have services that are less reactive but you know are able to do that work because it would reduce the pressure on the crisis service let, let alone the potential benefits or you know for women with complex trauma histories as well so it just frustrates me a bit because we're still so reactive and that's where the money goes and actually i think it would be time saving and more cost effective to invest in longer term services. I want to echo what Siobhan was saying because you know if you look at the whole criminal justice system it costs a lot more to uh, put someone in prison and, and put them in, in terms of incarceration and unfortunately when you look at the women that are in the end incarcerated you're already looking at uh, it's once again a very small minority of women but at the same time for a service that is not 
designed for women if you look at the criminal justice system. They rarely need high security kind of services, but unfortunately, a lot of them do get it just because you know they are within the uh, they are the minority there. They are, the system is designed such that they look at I suppose the type of offenses. And you, if you think about it, the women that ends up in in prison are usually the kind that uh, would commit um, the more I guess a more violent offence towards the end of the spectrum. But if you look at the research, they are not the ones that usually would require high security services. But the amount of money that it costs to kind of put someone in prison, it actually costs a lot lesser to look at community-based services that are more effective eventually in looking at reintegration when the women comes up from the criminal justice system, for example. Absolutely agree with that. And it's interesting because the more recent research that's come out in relation to women that have been incarcerated are for lower level offending. So it's even, to me, there's a really strong recognition that the service system is not supporting the, the women with complex trauma and they're falling through the gaps and ending up in the justice system for drug-related offending, for breach of bail offending because they're homeless for welfare-based needs. And so predominantly, uh, you would think that it would be, you know, the very small minority of violent offenders, but we've seen a huge increase in women incarcerated, even short-term sentences. And it just seems like this very expensive to government cycle that is not getting disrupted. So investing in early intervention is by far the most wise decision so i say gracie and siobhan should go into politics and make that happen but i also think that you raised a really good point gracie about child protection we can actually not that you can pinpoint and label young people coming through you don't want to do that but there's very key flags that we see with our young girls reported missing that without the right support, without the intervention, the trajectory is going to be exposure to multiple traumas through their lives, instability, and then a pathway to justice. So I absolutely echo what you say about the importance of early intervention and under-resourcing in child protection. That's where invest the money there and, and that disruption will be easier to attain. So that's a big picture stuff, miracle question stuff. We get a lot of guidance from you, Siobhan and, and Gracie in relation to what we can do now. But I guess what could practitioners working with women with complex trauma, what can they do now with the resources they've got? Is there anything that you can think of that can enhance that intervention? I know, Siobhan, you spoke about the importance of collaboration. Yeah, absolutely. And, I, you know, it's that idea that people with complex trauma histories often, you know, need a slightly different approach. They need, they need somebody that will take the time to get to know them, have like an authentic, a genuine therapeutic relationship, somebody that is able to, you know, sit and tolerate hearing what they've got to say at times without reacting or managing their own anxiety through their own supervision. You know, so not underestimating the importance of clients with complex trauma histories having a space to come and, and or to be with, you know, to be able to be with them when often lots of people and systems have let them down in their lives. So, you know, I, I suppose I wouldn't underestimate the importance of that. And it can often feel like we need to be doing more, but but that is, you know, that is 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 a, a doing, and it's a good doing. 
I think that is uh, the importance of connection. I know that um, Johan Hari has done a lot of that in terms of the alcohol and drug space. And in the service system, we discount that and diagnose and do all these screenings and scorings and forget the importance of connection. Gracie, do you have any thoughts on what we can do now? I know that we look to you a lot when we're working with the women in our project because it's integral to get that supervision and support when you're holding space. I, I, I like that term, you're holding space. So Gracie, do you have anything? Yeah, I, I echo what is being said and that, you know, I think at the end of the day, it's, it's back to basics in that, you know, if, you're, if we are working with, with humans or people in general, or women especially so, and I think it's that ability to just think about what is it like to actually build a relationship with someone, for, especially for someone who has been through uh, quite disrupted and dysfunctional relationships and just holding space. And I suppose, um, back to what Siobhan is saying, in that a lot of times, I think, um, understandably in our professions, when we work with people like that, I think there is a lot of temptation from ourselves, within ourselves, from the organization to be seen doing things. So you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to bring the client for this, you need to make sure you apply this for the client. But I think at the end of the day, recognizing that what is back to basics is being able to see where the client is right now and being able to interact in a manner that's helpful for the client. And that could be, you know, just being with the client for where it is and uh, being respectful of where the client is. And I think being aware that sometimes we bring our own ideas and preconceived ideas and, and kind of our bias and perhaps judgment even because we are all humans. But how do we ourselves uh, be aware of that and seek support, you know, whether it's supervision or some kind of support uh, to address that while being aware that that's happening. So that, you know, I think the only way, I, I suppose, what I'm trying to say is that we can hold space for someone is that if we are also able to kind of hold space for ourselves, you know, that we, we resist the urge from, because the client is sometimes presenting with a lot of issues, um, I think we have a lot of anxiety as a, as a clinician to want to do things. But also, I guess, holding the anxiety and holding space for ourselves is also helpful in then holding space for the client. I love that. I love that. And, and this is why I learned so much from both you, you both in, in working with women that have trauma histories, complex trauma, and not being reactive. I'm a reactive person. Um, I think a lot of people in the helping sector are reactive and in, in t they, they want to fix things and they want to see women thriving and they want to see clients achieving what they know that they can. But And they'll get there when they're ready with the right support. But it's taking that time and going on the journey with the clients, with their families and, and bolstering that support as well. So just in finishing up, is there any, you've mentioned, I, I wanted to touch on the collaboration again. It seems to be there's quite a lot of silos in the service system. And when we're looking at what we can do now to strengthen our response across sectors for women with complex trauma, what would be some parting words that you might 
and words of encouragement for for you know practitioners that actually want to make a difference and want to see the women thrive in in their communities what do you have any parting words as it's important to have a therapeutic relationship um, with the people that we're working with we actually also need that relationship with um, the different service sectors and I, I think part of the work is about um, getting people you know talking the same language and you know uh, resisting the position to know I know what needs to happen or you know I'm right it's about negotiating that space and I think as sectors different sectors if we can work together and spend the time negotiating well then it has an impact on the clients that we work with. and it's something that resonates with me there Siobhan is that it's not just one individual practitioner holding space it's then a team and then there can be so much benefit from that and the bonus is that you get to meet these fabulous people from across sectors that have the same passion and uh, really you know you you joined and and making a difference so gracie i don't think i have much more wise words than Siobhan has but I think she said it very well in that I think you know part of this work is really looking at how do we hold the space together and recognizing that I suppose if you look at the women you know there, there is that different systems interacting with her and at the end of the day if you think of it from a, a systems point of view or a systemic point of view or a systems theory point of view what then we want to do as, as helping profession is to look at how each system interact with her, but also how each system interact with each other so that we can uh, focus on what is best for her, you know, and how do we do it in a manner that's helpful and adaptive? Because I think at the end of the day, it's also back to being a role model for the client. And if the client were to witness or, or experience or uh, being able to kind of experience that, you know, there are different people within my systems who are able to interact in a manner that is helpful and that is not disruptive, that's not abusive, but is done in a respectful manner, then I think that in itself is a very strong message to the women that, you know, I can learn from this and there are actually ways that I can interact with people in a manner that's helpful and adaptive. Uh, they're not. Absolutely. And that's that old sentiment, sorry, Siobhan, of pro-social modelling. And so, you know, the, we go back to really old fundamental things of working with clients, which is connection, pro-social modelling, emotion regulation. So, you know, you mentioned adaptive, more adapt, adaptive behaviours. So I guess they are all things that any practitioner can really focus on. Sorry, Siobhan, I cut you off before. Uh, oh no, I just wanted to add to what Gracie said because she, she triggered my memory about one of my most favourite sayings is around <laughs> um, actually like relational healing. Relational healing happens not just when we're thinking about what's going on within us or within the client, but what's happening in the space in between and around the client as well in the system. And, and if we can get the system working in a certain way, professionals work in a certain way, work in a certain way with the client relationally, you know, it creates this healing culture. Oh, what a great saying and, and thought to finish off with. So I can't thank you both enough. I know at the moment you are 
both working right around the clock and we appreciate everything you do, not just for our women that come through our public and private systems, but for all people that have um, complex needs. So thank you, Gracie and Siobhan. It's been really enlightening. Thanks for listening and thanks to our special guests, Gracie and Siobhan. We hope this episode has helped shed some light on how complex trauma presents itself, particularly in women, and how working with those with complex trauma requires a more long-term, flexible and relationship-based approach. (laughs) 